very nicely done. Appreciate that so very much. That was a blessing. Book of Joshua, chapter number 2. In the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, chapter number 2. We have the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, of course, is where we just did the scripture reading from. And then we come to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter number 2. Moses has gone to glory. God has taken him from the earth. He died there on that mount, having just overlooked the promised land, the land of Canaan. Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land as a result of his sin of anger and striking the rock and breaking that symbol of Christ. And when he struck the rock, instead of speaking to it in disobedience, he forfeited his opportunity to go into the promised land. But God did allow him to go up on the mountain and to look over and to see it, and then God took him into glory. Moses had delivered uh, the sermon that we know as the book of Deuteronomy, and God had prepared a choice servant to follow behind Moses in his footsteps. Moses had big shoes, and Joshua had to step into some big shoes. He had to wear some big shoes, and Joshua was encouraged in chapter 1 to be strong in the Lord and to be of good courage. And not to fear, and not to be dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. And eventually in our series on Sunday nights on confidence in the scriptures, we will have a sermon from Joshua 1 and verse number 8, where Joshua is reminded that this book of the law shall not, not depart out of thy mouth. And then he goes on to say, but that thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. One of the first areas of success that Joshua was to lead the children of Israel into is the conquest of the promised land. Now, the land is still debated today. There's strife in Israel, violence. It's been in the news. Terrorist organizations that send hundreds of rockets into Israel to try to kill innocent people. Terrorists that, if they were to put their arms down, there would be peace. But if Israel were to put, it or put its arms away, Israel would cease to exist. But we know very clearly from Scripture that that land belongs to Israel. It will continue to be debated. There will continue to be peace treaties. There will continue to be politicians who will come together and sign their names on a piece of paper and shake hands and get thousands of pictures, and it will be on the headlines. But we know that one day there will be peace in the Middle East, and it will come as Jesus Christ rules and reigns with a rod of iron in his millennial kingdom and into the eternal kingdom, and Israel will have all the land that God promised them. And we are now in Joshua, in chapter number 2, after 40 years of wandering the wilderness, having already disobeyed God. The ten spies came back with an evil report. Only Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report. And the, those ten spies with their evil report turned the hearts of the Israelites against the leadership, against God's will. And there was rebellion. There was mutiny. And 
God judged Israel and God said there would be 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And basically all of those who were adults would, would die and then their children would be the ones who would enter into the promised land. And that's where we're at. Joshua is now at the time where he is to exercise his leadership in leading Israel in the will of God in claiming the very promise that God had given them concerning the land. And they're at the Jordan River overlooking, and there is a key city that God has led them to conquer first, and that is the city of Jericho. So we see, first of all, this morning, we see the coming judgment, the coming judgment. Joshua chapter number 2, verse number 1, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went, came into an harlot's house, named Rahab, and lodged there. The coming judgment. Joshua decided to send two spies. This was not questioning what God had already promised. This is simply living out in faith, based upon the promises and the principles and the commands of the Word of God. And we have to do the same. There are spiritual disciplines, there are Areas of obedience that God has clearly laid out that we are to do. And God is not going to do for us what he has already given us, the grace and the strength for us to do for ourselves. We still have to set the alarm clock. We still have to get up in the morning. We still have to get dressed for work or for church or whatever it is. We still have to do the spiritual disciplines. We still have to put our faith into action. I often talk about faith having combat boots on, or hiking boots, or running boots, or working boots. We have to exercise our faith with obedience, living out the principles, the commands, the promises of the Word of God. So there is some analogy here to the Christian life, and the victorious Christian life that we find in the conquest of the promised land. I know there are some who question this particular area of history, and they try to cast doubt on the Bible, on the Word of God, because why Why would God lead Israel to go in and to conquer in violent ways the land of Canaan, these, these, these nations in the land of Canaan? And we have to understand this was a different dispensation. We have to understand that that is not what God has commanded us to do in this dispensation. But we have to understand in the historical context, that the sins of Canaan were ripe for God's judgment. God had already delayed in his providence, and I know there was the disobedience of Israel, but in God's providence, the sins of Canaan, the land of Canaan, multiple nations, often in city-states, each king was kind of like a mayor of his own city, and sometimes a nation had multiple cities, Jericho, we understand, was just one city-state. The king would have been kind of like a mayor, but he had more authority and probably more like a military dictatorship in that city of Jericho. But the point is that the nations of Canaan were steeped deep in immorality and idolatry. Sexual perversions and sins that we won't even try to describe. 
Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. In a very discreet way, God says to Israel, these are the sins, moral sins, sexual sins that you are to avoid. And as he lists those in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, he comes to the end of that list and he says, these are the sins of the nations that defile the land that you are to one day conquer. And you, as the nation of Israel, are not to defile yourselves with the sins of the land. And oh, that we would heed that warning today in the 21st century, that we would not defile ourselves with the sins of the land. But sadly, our nation, our culture, our society, and around the world, there are many, many who are defiling themselves with the sins of the land. So the sins of Canaan, of those nations, of those people, they were ripe for God's judgment. God had delayed in His mercy, in His grace, for many years, for decades. Yet Canaan continued in its sin. Those nations continued. There were some exceptions. We'll learn of one today. Rahab. We know that there was Melchizedek. There were the Gibeonites. There were a handful of exceptions of those who saw the God of Israel is the one true and living God and received mercy and salvation. But the sins of Canaan were grievous. Immorality and idolatry, all sorts of perversions. And God would use Israel to judge the nations of Canaan. And there are some who would say that this conquest of Canaan was really, truly an act of mercy by our God. Because had the sins of the nations of Canaan been allowed to profligate around the world, I would say that our nation, where we're at today, we wouldn't even exist. Because the world would have, in a sense, imploded upon itself. So in one sense, it was an act of mercy. It was an act of grace of God. To allow Israel to be the instrument to conquer Canaan and to drive out these nations and in many cases, yes, kill the inhabitants of the land, but it was the result of their sin. It was the judgment of God upon the sin of the people. They had been given time to repent and even as Israel came into the land, they continued in their stubbornness, except for a few exceptions. And resisted God, even as he came in with the instruments in his hand, the nation of Israel, and they continued to persist in their sin, and they would die at the hands of Israel. As a part of the judgment of God, which was in essence part of God's plan, but also an act of mercy, an act of grace. I know it's hard for us to comprehend that, but I, I, don't, I don't like it when people accuse the Bible and accuse God of sin and genocide and being unrighteous in the conquest of Canaan. No, God was perfectly righteous. God was without sin. He was completely holy in his act of judgment in using Israel to conquer Canaan. And as a matter of fact, some years later, God would use Babylon 
and Assyria as judgment upon Israel as they got into the sins of the land and as they participated in the sins of the people of Canaan that they did not drive out and as they assimilated their sins, as they began to be rampant in idolatry and immorality and the sins of the land, they too had to be judged. And God would bring Assyria and God would bring Babylon and eventually other kingdoms. And that was one of the things the prophets of Israel struggled with. How could you use these wicked nations to bring judgment on Israel, God's people? But God said, because of the sin of Israel, because of the sin of Judah, I will use even Babylon, I will use Assyria, I will use these enemies of God's people in judgment. So it is not unusual for God to use other nations as instruments of judgment in his hand. The sins of a people become ripe for judgment as the grace and the mercy of God is rejected. Sometimes the idolatry, the immorality becomes so rampant that the sins of the people reach the depths of the reprobate mind. Romans chapter 1, where we are told that God gives them over. And that, in a sense, is where Canaan is at. And again, you can refer to Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, and you can see some of the moral perversions that are listed there that Israel was to avoid that God would drive out as Israel came and conquered the land of Canaan. But unlike the other inhabitants of Jericho, Rahab would recognize the coming judgment and saw that the one true God, Yahweh, Jehovah, was with the nation of Israel. So here we are in Joshua chapter number 2. We see this coming judgment And we read in verse number 2 of Joshua 2, And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. So these spies had been sent in to survey the land, to survey the city of Jericho to help Joshua and the leaders of Israel in determining a strategy to use good wisdom and practical sense that God had given them to determine how God would best have them conquer that city of Jericho. So we come from a coming judgment. We've seen the coming judgment, and now we see a risky act, a risky action. The spies. The spies went secretly. This was a risk. The spies had to travel from the east side of the Jordan River, seven miles from Shittim to the the Jordan River. The Jordan River would have fords where there would be a a shallow, more shallow area of the river that they could cross. We would read, we'll read later in Joshua 2, that that is where they would return. So We're assuming that's where they came across. They would return by one of those fords in the the river. Nevertheless, they would have had a risk in trying to cross the Jordan River. They would have traveled seven miles from Shittim to the Jordan River and then another seven miles from the Jordan River to Jericho. So these spies, there were just two this time. Remember, there had been 12 cents when 40 years earlier they had gone 
into the land of Canaan, and only Joshua and Caleb brought back the good reports. I don't think that there was any lack of faith on Joshua's part, but I can't help but think, humanly speaking, did Joshua have in the back of his mind what had happened 40-plus years earlier? Of how those 12 spies had gone in and only he and Caleb had returned with a good report. In the back of Joshua's mind, I can't help but wonder if he thought, as he sent these spies out, Lord, help these spies to go with a good faith assumption and survey of the land and return with the kind of report that would encourage the people. I cannot help but think that Joshua was in prayer as he had already uh, had uh, the word of God delivered to him. And he was encouraged in Joshua 1 to be strong and of good courage, to claim the word of God. I, I, I don't think that Joshua had doubts. I don't think that there was doubt in Joshua's mind. He had seen the land before himself 40 years earlier. He had come back in faith and he led Moses and the leaders of Israel along with Caleb to claim the promise to follow in obedience and to take the land. But those other ten spies had turned the hearts of Israel against God and against God's will and against the leadership. But here Joshua goes out again in faith, believing, as he had before when he was one of those spies. Now he in faith, believing God, sends two spies. They travel from Shittim on the east side of the Jordan River into Jericho. Now Jericho was a strategic city. Jericho, I've not been there. Maybe if you've been to the Holy Land, you've been to Jericho. From my understanding, in that day, it was a very strategic city. It was situated in the Jordan Valley at a key point of access to the highlands. Coming out of the Jordan Valley and coming up, there would be the city of Jericho, which would command the Jordan Valley and that access point to the highlands in that region. So it was a very important city. The spies were providentially led to the house of Rahab. Now, Rahab was a harlot. We read there in verse number 1 that they came into an harlot's house named Rahab. Her home would have been situated along the wall of the city, one of the walls there of the city. Of course, in that day, the city-states, the cities would have walls, would have gates. Her home, her house, was on the wall of the city. We also know that from later on as the scarlet rope, the scarlet cord, is let out of the window that the spies escape by, so we know where her house was located, there on the city wall. We know that her lifestyle, her, her conduct, was immoral. Even today, in our culture, which has accepted just about every sin and every moral perversion, there are maybe just a handful left that the, even the unsaved world still considers bad. Maybe it doesn't even use the word sin to describe it. But it is still looked down upon, even in our wicked culture in which we live. She was a prostitute. She was a harlot. 
She did not have a good reputation. It would not have been that uncommon in that day in those cities in the land of Canaan for there to be prostitution, for there to be harlotry, for there to be human trafficking and sex trafficking. Those sins would not have been uncommon in that day, along with all the other moral perversions. They went into Rahab's house. I don't think that they had any idea when they got there of what kind of reputation she had. They were spies. They were looking for a place to hide. I don't think that we should be critical of the spies for going into a harlot's house. I don't think that they really knew. I don't think they really understood. It would have been something that they would have, or a place that they probably would have had uh, fairly easy access to along the wall of the city coming in the gates. I can only imagine what it was like. And we've seen different movies, different Hollywood renditions of the... Uh, I can't help but think of the Wizard of Oz. I'm sorry. Uh, we, we, we like the Wizard of Oz around our house. And they, you know, they have to enter into the Wicked Witch of the West and the, the castle. And uh, they have to enter in. And you know, we've seen the different movie and Hollywood versions of people getting into a city. We know some of the Greek and uh, some of the mythological tales. I can only imagine the spies trying to find a caravan going into the city as the gates open, as they're trying to hide, and they get into the city, they get into Jericho, and they're looking for a place to hide. And they are led providentially by God to Rahab's house. It was an accessible place. It was along the wall. There was a window by which they would be able to escape later. It was all part of God in his providence leading them to a woman who was questioning her current situation, who was looking for answers, who was doubting the lifestyle that she was involved in, that was doubting the kind of way in which Jericho and the people of Jericho were living. Some have, uh, from historical record, uh, believed that the people of Jericho were the Amalekites, Amalek being the king. So they were specifically a people that God had marked for judgment, uh, not just because of their, their own moral sins, but because of their specific attacks upon Israel while they were in the wilderness. So here they are, they enter into Rahab's house, and Rahab is questioning the leaders of the land, questioning the morality of her people, looking for answers. And she gave the spies shelter, and, and God was providentially reaching her as her heart was responding positively and submissively to the truth concerning God, the God of Israel, and the news of Israel's initial conquests, including their deliverance from Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, they didn't have social media back then. They didn't have telephones and cell phones. They didn't have DM and IM and all the other messaging services. But word got out, didn't it? Word spread. And we know from Exodus 15 that there would be fear and dread that would come upon the nation of Israel, or upon the nations of Canaan because of what God was doing on Israel's behalf. Word had got out. Rahab was questioning her lifestyle, questioning 
the politics, the leadership, the ways of her own people. She was responding submissively, positively to the truth regarding the God of Israel. Responding positively, submissively to the news regarding Israel's conquests. And now word had got out that spies had entered the city. And where are the spies? They are in Rahab's house. The king of Jericho found out and he demanded that they be brought to him. There in verse number three. No doubt as those messengers came from the king to Rahab's house to arrest those spies, no doubt they would have been bound. They would have been dragged to the king and they would have been severely punished and probably executed. In verse number three says, the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab saying, bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house for they become to search out all the country. He sent messengers, no doubt, to Rahab's home. But what did Rahab do? She didn't turn in the spies. Instead, Rahab hid them on the roof of her house. Verse 4, And the woman took the two, two men and hid them, and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. She had hid the spies. Her roof would have been a flat roof on the wall of the city, her home was located on the wall of the city that would have been a flat roof. It would have been common in that day for them to take these stalks of flax that they had grown and to lay them out on the flat roof of the house to dry. They would then stack those stalks of flax. They would bind them together, possibly lay them down or just leave them upright and they could be three or four feet long. So there are some artist renditions of the spies lying flat on the roof and covered with these stalks of flax. There are some that show the stalks of flax upright and the spies hiding behind them. Either way, she hid them. This was an act of treason on her part. We we know just from ancient texts such as the Code of Hammurabi that among the ancient civilizations... Not too different from today when there is an act of treason. Sometimes it just depends on what political party that the act of treason takes place. But anyway, the act of treason would have been the the cause for execution. Rahab was putting her life on the line. She was saying yes to the enemies of her people and saying no to the sin and the licentiousness and the immorality and the ungodliness of her own people. She was putting her life at risk and she was putting her whole family in jeopardy. This was an act of faith. Rahab's faith produced an inner resolve. She faced certain death by giving the enemy advantage and risked the death of her own people. Yes, she lied to the messengers in an attempt to save their lives, but God never honors her lie. She was an unsaved person who was now acting in faith, in belief. We are not 
condoning her lie. God never condones her lie. He honors her for her faith. And in her faith, she hid the spies. She told the messengers from the king a lie, saying they had escaped. She then turned to the spies and she had a bargain. We know the king's messengers, they believed her story. They pursued after the spies. They left the city. The gates to the city were closed in case the spies were still in the city. Gates to the cities would have been closed at sundown. So the messengers went out chasing the spies that they thought had left the city. They were told, the spies were then told by Rahab the best way out of town. Go out the window on the scarlet cord and look out under the highlands. From what I understand, there were some limestone quarries, caves where they could hide for a few days and then they can continue their journey back to the people of Israel. Her faith produced a resolve. Her faith produced an obedience. Her faith produced a commitment to God. It caused her to turn from her sin to literally lay down her life in a sense to deny herself, to take up her cross and to follow Christ, to follow God. It was a risky act with coming judgment. But then we see finally today a remarkable faith. Once again, Rahab risked her life knowing that doing so she would potentially cause the defeat of her city and the death of her own people. She couldn't possibly have known that the bargain that she had come up with, that she had offered, would be accepted by the spies. Let's go down. Verse number 7, The men pursued after them the way to Jordan under the fords, and as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land. She acknowledges Yahweh, L-O-R-D, in all caps, Yahweh, Jehovah God. She recognizes God as the Lord God, Jehovah. He has given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us. A fulfillment of God's promise in Exodus 15 that the fear, the dread of Israel would fall upon the nations of the land. And that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. What a statement of faith. She believed God. And I know it's not written there in the text, but she believed God and it was counted unto her for righteousness. And James would talk about, in James 2 and verse 25, about how her faith was demonstrated by works and she was justified. James 2, James uses as an example, her works didn't save her, her faith saved her. But her works demonstrated, gave evidence of her faith. She hid the spies. She was not honored for her lie. But her works were righteous in the sense that she gave evidence of her saving faith. Not that her lie was righteous, but that her hiding the spies 
her dedication to God, her turning from the idolatry, turning from the immorality, turning from all that was near and dear to her, not depending upon her works and doing a a bunch of good things, but no, calling upon God in his mercy and pleading and saying, save me. Your God is the one true God. And then we read of this bargain. Verse 11, and as soon as we had heard these things, excuse me, verse 12, now therefore I pray you swear unto me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that ye will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. She uses the word kindness, which is in the Hebrew hesed, which is the word used 250 times in the Old Testament for loyal, steadfast, faithful love based on a promise, a covenant, or an agreement. This is again an act of her faith, a demonstration of her faith. She wants to make a covenant with the people of Israel, with their God. And what are the terms of the covenant? Now therefore I pray you swear unto me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that ye will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token, and that ye will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. And the men answered her, Our life for yours, if ye utter not this our business. And it shall be when the Lord hath given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. Then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall, and she said to them, Get you to the mountain, let the, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers be returned, and afterward may you go your way. Verse 17, And the men said unto her, We will be blameless of this thine oath which thou hast made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window which thou didst let us down by. And thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee. And it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of thy house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless. And whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be on our head, if any hand be upon him. And if thou utter this our business, then we will be quit of thine oath, which thou hast made us to swear. And she said, according unto your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet line in the window. Here's the covenant. A demonstration of her faith. Not knowing if this bargain, this covenant that she was to offer would even be accepted. But it was. And then she had to live out this faith. As she said, your God is my God. As she responded to the fear and to the dread of the God of Israel. And she responded in submission, in conviction. And she responded seeing her sin, seeing her need for the Savior and crying out to God for mercy. As she makes this covenant, she has to act upon this covenant. She has to live out her faith. She has to spend how much time now? Gathering in her family. Think of her faith. I want to reach my family. I want them to be with me. I want them to be saved. She lives out her faith in going to her family and witnessing to her family and bringing her family to her house. And we know that they were saved along with her from Joshua chapter number 6 and verses 22 through 25, where we read of the conquest of Jericho and how Rahab was saved and only her portion of the wall was left standing. 
And the scarlet thread, the scarlet cord was left hanging from her window and they knew that Rahab was there and that she had kept her promise, she had kept her covenants. And that scarlet cord would represent the blood of Jesus Christ. As the blood was put on the doorpost at the Passover and the death angel passed over, so the scarlet cord was hung from the window and I can only imagine how many knots that she tied that scarlet cord with. In my mind, in my imagination, she probably double, tripled, I don't know. Some of you may have Navy in your background or you like to sail boats and you know all the different knots. I'm sure she tied the tightest knot she could possibly tie. And who knows, she may have added even more cords so that red would stand out. So it would be very obvious that she and her household were there. And that she was calling and trusting upon the Lord for her salvation and for her influence. By her influence, her own family was saved. Her faith led not only to her salvation, but to the salvation of her family. And though, as an enemy of God, she recognized that only by mercy and by grace could she ever be saved. She pleaded for that mercy. She pleaded for that grace. And God gave it to her because she came in faith, in submission, in humility, and called upon God to be her God and claimed the Lord God Jehovah. Her faith resulted in action. She hid the spies. Her faith resulted in action. She kept the cord and she let it out the window so it could be seen. She brought in her family. She kept her end of the bargain. She didn't go and tell about the spies. Her faith was tested and it remained true. She kept her word. And God and Israel, Joshua and the Israelites, kept their word to her. Think about the influence of Rahab. Think about how she through her faith, brought her family to salvation. At a time when Israel was conquering the land, at a time when Israel was defeating all their enemies, the only way for her to be saved and for her family to be saved was to call upon the God of Israel to turn from the wickedness, to turn from the sin of the land, to even to commit a traitorous action against her own people. And against all of that opposition in her faith, she believed God and God saved her and her influence led to the salvation even of her family. And we know from Matthew 1, verses 5 and 6, that Rahab even became an ancestor of Jesus. She was in the line of David as the wife of Salmon. And in Matthew 1, 5 and 6, it would make her the great-great-grandmother of David. She's in the line of Jesus. An incredible story of God's providence, an incredible story of faith and of a woman's influence. In a day in which our culture is attacking women, redefining women, not even knowing what a woman is, the Bible is very clear about who a woman is and the influence that she can have. And Rahab became a mother who was once a prostitute who was once living a life of immorality, and she became a woman of purity, of cleanliness, of holiness. She became a mom with influence that would be in the very line of Jesus. She was 
A woman of faith who, as a result of her influence, saw her whole family saved. Think about the influence of a mom. Think about the influence of a woman, a godly woman, a God-fearing woman. In a day in which God's design of and for women and mothers is being redefined, attacked, and ridiculed, Rahab is a good reminder of God's desire to show His redemption His grace and His mercy through a woman and a mother who will resolve to believe God and obey Him, even in spite of opposition, even in spite of hardship. May our women and mothers be encouraged today to remain faithful to the Lord, to exercise their faith, to live it out as Rahab did, and to find find honor in living for the Lord. And fulfill his perfect will and plan for their lives. And don't listen to the voices of this culture. But listen to the voice of God from his word. Where we read in Proverbs 31 and verse 10. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. Proverbs 21 and verse 21. He that followeth after righteousness and mercy findeth life, righteousness and honor. So many of us are blessed to have had godly moms. I did. I'm thankful for my mom. To have married a godly woman who has been a tremendous influence on our kids. May our desire in our day and age be to live according to God's design, according to God's principles. And see our young ladies grow up to be godly moms and godly wives to influence the next generation for Jesus Christ. And may we again be eternally grateful and thankful for our moms, for our wives. And may as moms and wives, as women called to this time and to this generation, may each of our ladies, moms, women be encouraged in their faith. Encouraged in their walk with God. Encouraged by the word of God and the promises and the principles, the commands of scripture to remain faithful. Knowing that God will honor. That God will bring that life and that righteousness and honor. As our women, our moms, our ladies pursue the righteousness of God and his mercy. And see God honor them for it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And for these eternal truths, Lord, Rahab came from such a dark and wicked background. She's a token of your grace, your mercy. An example of how not many mighty, not many noble are chosen. But Lord, Rahab turned to you in saving faith and she lived out that faith. And may, Lord, we see women, young ladies, Girls who are growing up all around, both in our church and around our world, Lord, as they commit their lives to you, as they trust you, as they are saved and then live for you, Lord, see you honor their lives, honor their husbands through them and honor their children and honor their homes as they apply these principles, these commands, these promises, these truths to their lives and live for you. Thank you for our moms. Thank you, Lord, for the tremendous influence they have been in our lives. Lord, we pray that you will do your work in our hearts as we sing this closing hymn. In Jesus' name we pray.